I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Travis Dow, and this episode is my introduction on the show to a now, safe to say, defunct podcast I started called Africa History. I, I just wish I had more time. And, and the thing is, actually starting this podcast, this podcastnik feed, um, is one way I will keep it alive. So uh, in the meantime, like since I started this project, there has been a couple other podcasts on Africa that started up. And I know that there's plans uh, in the future to do some podcasts about Africa. So my whole idea behind Africa history was, I mean, I started it like I I mentioned the idea in one of the the forums for history podcasters, like, you know, who's in, who's who's with me. I want to, you know, just the scant sources that are there. I want to give African history as, as much of a good look as I can from the African perspective or African sources. And most of the feedback was just like, that is such a crazy, huge project. But that's that's kind of what I'm known for. Like, I don't that doesn't discourage me at all. I wanted there to be like a bunch more uh, like collaborations and maybe even guest episodes and stuff, but even that just take t- takes time to manage. So instead, like luckily other people have kind of, you know, taken up um, you know, this as a podcasting topic like the history of Africa. But by putting it on this feed, I will actually be able to keep it alive. So I do have one inter- interview set up just in a couple episodes from now um, from someone that lived in Zambia. And and this is kind of like, uh, well, in this episode, I'll, I'll show why I even wanted to do a podcast on Africa. And then um, there's only like six episodes or so that made it, but I kind of consider it in English, at least some of my best work. I really enjoyed making them and I, and I really poured all, all my effort into them. So this is one, this is probably the last or second to last episode from Africa, a history in a way. I'm So for the first time, I'm bringing stuff together that like never existed, but like I'll, I'll translate some of my Americana content back to English or to English and, and have some, some U.S. history here on this show and kind of, yeah, the whole range of, of everything of all of our 10 podcast feeds. And then by doing that, we can even, you know, retire some old feeds and give new content a place to live here because it's just much more whatever we want to do. And this episode, what I want to do is tell you about the time I went to Africa and went to Zanzibar in Tanzania and Kenya and uh, you know, did the whole like taking pictures at, of wild animal things. Just had an amazing, I mean, it's just still one of the most beautiful landscapes I've ever seen. I don't know if I'll play the intro here. So I just want to emphasize that like with my own eyes, that some of the most beautiful things I've seen is just landscape wise and nature and animals and everything is definitely in, in Africa. Like the top 10, like five of them have to be in Africa. So anyways, this is uh, this is that. Welcome to Africa, a history. This episode, I had some help researching and organizing uh, some of the finer points from Anna Weinberg 
from no lesser show than the lesser bonaparts you can listen to more of her work there today the spice island in the indian ocean off of east africa specifically zanzibar I tried to cut this episode down. I tried to split it into several parts, into a mini-series like I do with the history of Germany, when I've bitten off more than I can chew. But not this time. We're covering it all. Because I want to give you a full picture of a very complicated piece of geography. So to give you that full picture, I'll go back and forth a bit this episode, weaving in the parts that I need as I go which I know has, that style has uh, annoyed this or that listener in the past, but I think overall this will be a much better show for it. I always find the neatest places on earth to be the ones where cultures bleed into each other. Um, the sort of fringes or border areas between like, you know, core cultural regions. The island of Zanzibar is a great example of such a place. Stonetown, for instance, was going to be its own episode, but then it would just be an orphan, take it out of context. So Stonetown is what they call the Old Town of Zanzibar City. It still shows signs from its Omani imperial past, the Arab-style palaces and architecture, alongside the newer colonial architecture from when the Germans, then Brits, ran things. You can still see their colonial-era consulates across the street from each other. And doors and door frames showing signs of Indian influence, specifically their wood carving craftsmanship, long since not done by Indians themselves, but an influence the locals absorbed when they started carving their door frames as status symbols. It's also where Freddie Mercury was born. Like from Queen, I I saw his house. Oh yeah, like I've I've been there. The fabled Spice Island. And it's called that because um, we went on a on a spice tour where, like, in a couple of square feet or square yards, square meters, whatever, uh, just this tiny little area, you would see peppercorn growing right next to vanilla, right next to lemongrass, and just all kind of, I mean, it just seemed like it would be wild or semi-wild, but yeah, every plant had some purpose. Um, the cinnamon bark, uh, including this huge palm tree. Um, I'm not even sure. I I don't know how to estimate the the height of these things, Um, but it's a way taller palm tree that I've ever seen in the United States or in Europe anywhere. I mean, it was just, it just outdid any, I mean, it was huge, maybe 10 stories. I mean, it's hard to overestimate how big, how tall this thing was. Um, And this guy climbed up and picked coconuts. And it's like, I mean, he was a speck up in the sky, kind of. I mean, it sounds like hyperbole, but it it was a tall tree, okay? Um, Very neat. Just, yeah, and that's, that's, and tons of other spices I can't remember. But if, if uh, in Stonetown, if you make your way through the seemingly kind of tiny and like really narrow alleyways, which are all still original cobblestone, just, it's a great place. Um, it's really easy to spot, like this mix of Arabic, Indian, African, European influences, just all sort of piled on top of each other in the squished together buildings. And again, this, this combination definitely creates something that is all its own. Between the spice market and the very smelly and seemingly unhygienic meat market, but, but still you'd see people like napping on the counter. Yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) Uh, then out to sea with the um, triangle sail dows out in the ocean. One might think of the famous spice islands, Zanzibar, Arab traders, the dows, the trade to India and China, and once the capital of the Omani Empire. It was central to this East African colonial policy and practices because of the language they spoke, Swahili. And we're going to circle back to all that stuff. Um, but from the Portuguese to the Germans to the British, okay. So, to look at Zanzibar, we will also look at the Swahili language a little bit closer, but I want to really emphasize this this trade, this mix of this mix of cultures. And really what what caused that to be is trades. It's really at a crossroads, you know, for ivory gold and especially per- perhaps slaves and, you know, spices going in the other direction, textiles, um, spice is kind of going in both directions, really. The intersection of Indian, Arab, 
sub-Saharan African traders. The trade networks reached across the Indian Ocean, west across the Sahara, with, from that point of view, Zanzibar kind of right in the middle. It is an island off the coast of Tanzania, modern-day Tanzania. It, Zanzibar it comes from the Arabic, I hope I don't butcher this too bad, but it comes from the Arabic Zanzibar, which is really from Persian, Zang, Zangbar, like black coast. It's very strategically located to, it's just a great stopping point between India, the Arab Peninsula, because it's, it's south of the Omani, um, you know, modern day Oman and, and Arabia and Yemen. It's right off of Africa. And again, so it's just, it's just a great trading base. It's everybody kind of wanted to have it because it controls a lot of trade. Trade kind of has to go through there in a way. Now, Zanzibar town has a sheltered harbor, making it all that much more valuable. The earliest trade along the coast of East Africa that included Arabs and Persians probably predates Islam even. Now, in the 8th century, we start to see the development of large sort of permanent settlements along the East African coast. It's a fair guess to call those the first Swahili speakers. And if you want to look at a map, I mean, important cities were like Mogadishu, or so they'd be close to cities like Mogadishu, Pemba, Mombasa, in modern-day Somalia, Kenya, the coastline there. And then starting in the 12th century, we get into the gold trade with the Zimbabwe kingdom, straight south. And we have that to be the case when the Portuguese crash into them in the 16th century. Zanzibar wasn't really the center, like Zanzibar City. Zanzibar, the island, wasn't the center of much of this for, for much of this period. But that's kind of why I picked it, because it was all of these things. The one noteworthy exception is 1655, when the Kingdom of Oman seized control of the East African coast from the Portuguese and made Zanzibar the capital of the Omani African possessions. So the city of Zanzibar, uh, yeah, was a, it was went all the way north to, obviously, um, modern-day Oman. Now, okay, it was a super mix. It was a blend. But can we see something that is distinctly Swahili, like Swahili from a cultural point of view? And one of, one of those uh, landmarks is that Zanzibar is one of a, yeah, I don't know if it's, an arch yeah, I guess you can call it an archipelago. Like there are, there are other islands off the coast forming a chain of sorts. Um, so we do see other Swahili city-states kind of on islands, perhaps as a defensive measure. Um, later just, you know, naturally serving as great trading posts, really. But so this was kind of um, but not necessarily universal. There's also places on the coast that are very Swahili and not on an island. But yeah, you can you, you, you see a similarity within the region. Now, where did they come from? Like, what is the basis of Swahili culture slash language slash people? And therefore Zanzibar itself? If you go back as far as you can with uh, the, the inhabitants of Zanzibar... It was inhabited by Bantu peoples. I still haven't gotten to the Bantu migration yet or anything, but uh, I've mentioned them in every episode so far. Possibly around the area of the Great Lakes. Um, I mean, that's, you know, just a good guess because there was a lot of um, emigration from there across all of Africa, really. It was, there was motivation to be there, I would say, because we start to see, for instance, glass beads. Um, that's some of the earliest trade goods that, that you know, archaeology can, can show. Uh, glass beads popping up from India. So we, we start to see like early trade and therefore, you know, people wanting to be there. Uh, for that reason, there's pottery. And this is really cool, actually. So the pottery on the beaches. And uh, I also saw this on a, on a documentary uh, pointed out, but... Um, it's, it goes all the way back to, to the ancient Mesopotamians, like Sumer and Assyria type of like that, that um, you know, 1000 BC and, and more. Um, so an Assyrian, yeah, so there's some, tra there's some trade. A pendant found in an Assyrian city of Eshnuna, if I didn't butcher that, was traced to Zanzibar. So that's pretty neat. Fast forward about a millennia. The first century AD, we have evidence of traders from the Persian Gulf. And then again, those those beads in India. And, it, you know, they just kind of had their, their own version of the trade winds, which were the monsoon winds. 
Uh, and there's there's neat stories that I'll come back to around this. But basically, you know, one season they would head west towards Africa, and the next season the winds would blow them back east. Um, Columbus, you know, d- used the same principle, uh, discovering the trade winds in the Atlantic to you know when he sailed to America. So yeah, so we have this trade, this these traders meeting each other, Arabs, Persians, Bantu peoples, and that that brings us that gives us things like mosques with thatched roofs just really neat some of the first muslims in the area they convert pretty early i'll circle back around to that a couple times but lamu the city was perhaps as sophisticated as medieval venice just a really neat and definitely kind of cultured in its own way place it's uh, just again from watching a documentary it's just kind of neat to see them celebrate their muslim festivals like the muslim holidays in a very swahili you know, like African sort of way. Um, very cool. I like, I, I just thought that was great. If you want to like look that up on YouTube, they, they really adopted Arab names and culture. And in fact, the first transliteration of Swahili are in Arabic script. And uh, in fact, okay, so there is one really neat story that uh, I'm stealing from a documentary somewhere. Um, but uh, it was, it was about, it was about how they were converted to Islam. And basically the story goes thusly that they came to, um, these Arabic, you know, Muslim traders were following the trade wind South, but a storm drove them much further South than they wanted to go. In fact, so far that the locals still had a very, uh, like pagan animistic beliefs. They were cannibals and the Arab merchants were captured and brought to the king. Now, the king was impressed with what he saw, with what they traded, and um, the Arabs invited the king onto their ships when they left, and the king accepted and was kidnapped and taken to Oman. So this African king was sold as a slave, where he learned Arabic, studied Islam, and eventually escaped and walked, according to the story, all the way back. This is a long distance, thousands of miles. Okay, but he went, got back to his kingdom and, and uh, took back the, the throne, so to speak. Now, the Arabs came back, again through a storm, and again found themselves in front of this king. And the king says to them, Go, since your people have introduced me to Islam, we are now brothers. Uh, however, the king did not accompany them to their ships this time. And the point of the story is, well, okay, so that's... It, it, the the truth in history is is what I would say is um, there was slave traders for sure, and a good way to not be a slave caught by Muslim slave traders would be to convert to Islam yourself because that then it was not permitted. You're not supposed to have Muslim slaves or you know capture enslave Muslims kind of thing. So that's there's probably a kernel of truth. It was probably advantageous. Um, for the people on the receiving end of the slave trade to definitely be Muslim. And in the 10th century, we start to see stone materials, this, the, the earliest stages of what you can kind of still see today, but this, this urban development. And the 11th to 12th centuries is when you, it's really started to become more settled. Um, the more, there was more intermarriage with the locals and in 1107 AD, Yemenis build the earliest mosque in the Southern Hemisphere, built in the village of Ugunja, I believe it's pronounced, in Zanzibar. Now, let me introduce the Portuguese, but don't get mad, but I'll, uh, I'm going <laughs> to jump around a little bit more. Um, but the, the okay, 1499, Vasco da Gama gets to Zanzibar. Four years. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Later, effectively, Zanzibar becomes a part of the Portuguese empire. It's, it's already a colony. In the 16th century, it really becomes a base for their operations the, that, that whole time. Um, there are many revolts against them, but uh, up to this point, Zanzibar was basically an outpost. Again, with the, the same trade, local, like raw materials from Africa, manufactured goods from Arabia, India, Egypt. Um, yeah, so just, just in the middle of a trade route. Now in 1698, I mentioned uh, the Omani. We have Saif bin Sultan kicks the Portuguese out, first in Mombasa, and Zanzibar becomes an overseas holding of Oman. And this is, um, yeah, it's not all good because now they, the Omani kingdom again makes Zanzibar its capital, but in this time also, and, and when I was there, like you could still see the palaces from this age, from the, yeah, the, the very tail end, but really from the 18th century. And, and it's cool. I mean, it's, it's neat to see. What's not so neat is because they had, they took over the most fertile area, uh, land in that area, they chose to, um, work that land with the local African slaves, like population turned slaves. So we see this Arab elite aristocracy, but, but really like slaveholders, um, ruling the local Bantu population. And there was an expansion of trade in this time, obviously slaves being one thing, but also like things like ivory increased. One reason I didn't want to split all these things into different episodes is because I'm going to spend a whole different episode talking about the slave trade. This is not, won't have a lot of overlap with that episode though, because when people think of the African slave trade, they're thinking of West Africa, the other end of the continent. Those are the slaves that formed this trade triangle that went from, uh, you know, Great Britain to Africa to the Caribbean, okay? And, and um, slaves going from Africa to the Caribbean, basically, and up into the United States and South America and all that. This was not that. A, a tiny amount of these slaves made it all the way that far, you know, circled around the Cape of Good Hope, let's say, and, and made it all the way to the Caribbean. These slaves were for the Arab slave market and going straight north uh, and east and, and, you know, to Egypt and that kind of thing. So totally different source of slaves to a totally different market. Going, yeah, I mean, going as far east as India, uh, you could see these African slaves, even in other countries like Ethiopia and Somalia, just right next door. But they were used to work plantations, uh, especially sugar plantations, just like in the Caribbean. And this is, um, this was one thing that the Arabs were kind of known for. I mean, even the, you know, French and English Step nomads, Slavs, they, they, they all now and then ended up as, um, you know, Arab slaves. Um, this is, so when I was there, I did see something that just kind of shocked me. So, uh, so the slaves were brought to Zanzibar in Dows. Zanzibar was kind of the market. Dows, you know what, it's spelled different than my last name, pronounced the same. Uh, but it's those sailboats with the triangular sails. Um, so yeah, anyways, they were brought down by, by boat or by ship to Zanzibar stripped naked and adorned with gold and silver. Uh, they were paraded, like, to dress them up. Like, they were paraded and inspected like animals until they were bought. And there's one description from a captain um, from the East India Company who visited Zanzibar in 1811 and witnessed these these marches, uh, you know, to the market and back. And he, he writes, quote, The mouth and teeth are inspected and afterwards every part of the body in succession. Not even excepting the breasts, etc., of the girls, many of whom I've seen examined in the most indecent manner in the public market by the purchasers. The slave is then made to walk or run a little way to show that there is no defect about the feet, after which, if the price is agreed to, they are stripped of their finery and delivered over to their future master. I have frequently countered 20 or 30 of these files in the market at one time. Women with children newly born hanging at their breasts and others so old they can scarcely walk. They're all sometimes seen dragged about in this manner. 
They had in general a very dejected look. Some groups appeared so ill-fed that their bones seemed as if ready to penetrate the skin. End quote. Um, yeah, about forty to 50,000 slaves were brought to Zanzibar each year. And the, I mean, one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life, it's, it's kind of hard to paint you a picture. Um, but, uh, and I mean, I've been to concentration camps. Okay. Th this was worse. So brace yourself. <clears throat> uh, it's a, it's a really tiny room. Let's say like a yard, like a meter, which is not, that's, you know, not tall enough to stand by, uh, Oh, I don't know how, like it was, it was maybe six feet, like two, three meters deep and about that wide, let's say, but not tall enough to stand except for a trench in the middle. So the, the, the tourists like us on the tour, we stood in the trench in the middle. Um, but they said, okay, so they stuff this room as full as it gets. And the trench in the middle is basically the sewage. So you just kind of, it all goes to the middle. And that means that none of the slaves could stand up or basically sit. They were all kind of squished, laying down, squished into that room like sardines. And this was right outside the market. It could have easily accommodated a bigger room. There was no reason um, to do this, really. It wasn't like it, the, they were crushing them into a ship, like to drive them across the Atlantic. It was just, it was a, it was a room on land. So there's really no, no reason, you would think. Um, and to top it all off, there was a suffocation factor because there was only one air hole to the outside. It was very small. It was just kind of like six inches, uh, like 15 centimeters in diameter to the outside, which means there was a little bit of struggle and fighting to get to it. And, and if everybody played nice, then people would kind of circle around to it. But inevitably, some just plain suffocated to death for no reason. And then they were kind of pushed in the middle to the sewage thing to make more room for everybody else. Okay, so that's that's pretty bad. That was that was pretty bad. Um, yeah, slave slaves. This whole slave idea sucks. But I just wanted to paint a picture that Zanzibar had that going on. It was as brutal or more brutal than anywhere else. There there were slave revolts, obviously. I mean, any chance they got. It just again, that kind of shows how cruel things things were. Um, they were they had to be put down harshly, obviously, and they were. Everybody in shackles. Everybody in chains. Yeah. Anyways, okay, so moving on. Uh, the, the trade itself worked seasonally, like I mentioned, uh, to the monsoons. And that's, that's kind of neat because... So in one season, you'd go from Arabia, India, Persia, bring the manufactured products like iron, uh, the finished sugar, porcelain, glassware, woven textiles, took it back home. You'd, and on the return trip, you bring raw materials, tortoise shells, copal, cloves, cork, coconuts, rice, ivory, animal hides, golds, and slaves. In 1840, Sultan Said Said moves his capital from Oman to Zanzibar. And Zanzibar really becomes the, the central point of, of that kingdom, or sultanate. We see clove plantations spring up in, in um, his time, however, using slave labor. And it's, I guess, now now is the time when it really earns its name Spice Island as being a spice exporter but instead of just a place to harbor ships, really. Only 20 years later, in uh, just shortly after Said's death, 1861, Zanzibar and Oman end up being divided into two separate principalities, being run by his sons, two brothers. And this is about the time when the Brits show up. And I... I think this is a note from Anna, but this is great. So from, from far of, from far away, Zanzibar looks like an Oriental fantasy. And, and I got to say, I mean, so it's called, you know, black sand or um, it's just, it's gorgeous. The, the, the nature there is just, just incredibly beautiful. Also the Tanzanian like coastline and the Kenyan t coastline. Um, the, I think I've said before when, when I, when I said maybe in the introduction episode that the beaches there, the, the sand was the finest, whitest sand I've ever seen. That was Zanzibar. Um, so yeah, so from afar, Zanzibar looks like an oriental fantasy. Close up, it stinks with all the, uh, stuff and trash left to rot in the sun. And it is inhabited by starving slaves brimming with cholera, malaria, and venereal diseases. As harsh as that sounds, I, I, I mean, I, should, I think I should let that stand because it's, it's very accurate. 
you see these Omani um, palaces. You see these um, just beautiful. There was, um, I think, one princess. There, there is some nice stories among all this this horribleness. Like one princess freed freed a bunch of slaves, and she planted a tree along an, uh, this beautiful lane. Now, because it's 150 years later, um, so now there's these giant trees, but each one represents a freed slave, and that's great because it's like just like 200 trees. Um, so there's there's some nice stories here, and it is a beautiful, beautiful place. But it was it was built on the backs of slavery. So kind of like, yeah, this reminds me of this or that place. And, um, well, I mean, in this time, the sultan, uh, he had tra- going into Africa, he had trade routes going all the way as the Congo River, like reaching deep into Central Africa. Um, and back to Zanzibar City, the slave markets, all that, in... The you could actually tell just walking through Zanzibar to this day because some of the door frames and everything have, have been preserved. It's a very kind of old, historic, uh, well-preserved town. And um, on the door frames, so what I, when I mentioned the wood carvings from from Indian tradesmen or craftsmen, uh, they would carve the the frames of the doors. And they would carve them with what they did. So if they were a trader, then you'd see you know ivory like tusks or spices, or gold, or this or that, but also chains, which meant slaves. And I like I took some pictures of that, so you'd see like that there's a former slave trader that used to live in this house. Now, I also mentioned the Germans. In November 1886, there's a German-British commission that, that delimits the, the Zanj to a, like a 19-mile, a 19-kilometer wide strip among the coast of the African Great Lakes from Cape Delgado, which it's in today's Mozambique, to Kipini, which is in Kenya, um, including several islands. Okay, I didn't. I don't really. I'm not going to describe the, the geography so close there because what matters is from 1887 to 1892, all Zanzibar and the mainline, mainland possession was lost to the UK, Germany, and Italy. 1876 is when the tra- the slave trade was finally abolished but not in Zanzibar, where it remained legal until 1897. Now, the Brits gradually take over more and more. In 1890, there's a Helgoland-Zanzibar Treaty. 1890, this is signed between the UK and the German Empire. Germany gained the little island of Helgoland, or the archipelago, the whole island chain, really. And this is right off the German coast. Before this, the, the Brits had occupied it. And the Brits instead got Zanzibar. This this was neat. I, I was like, they traded Zanzibar for Helgoland? Like, I've been to Helgoland. It's not at all tropical or spicy in any way. Um, it's quaint in its own uh, North Sea sort of, um, yeah kind of culture but uh, i don't know if that was a good trade but obviously if you're germany you don't want the brits to have an island right off your coast some of those islands in the chain you can literally walk to when the tide goes out so in any case zanzibar and pemba become british protectorates and now the brits did a sort of indirect rule where they they kept the sultan and vizier or vizier in place and then you know kind of told him what to do this did lead to an Anglo-Zanzibar war when one of the one of the sultans took over and didn't do what they wanted in uh, August 25th, 1896. There was a revolt because uh, the British puppet Hamoud bin Mohammed was was their puppet. Um, instead, some some guy named Khalid bin Bargash took over, and the Brits didn't like this. Anglo-Zanzibar war. The navy ships come up, destroy. Uh, a palace, just bombard a palace and order the the Khalid to leave. And he indeed flees to the German consulate and a ceasefire is declared 45 minutes after the whole bombardment began. So like it started at 9 a.m. It was over by 9.45. The, this bombardment, so the Anglo or this battle, if you can call it as such, the, in the Anglo-Zanzibar War was the shortest war in history. At least it's known as such. 1897, so uh, the next year, Hamoud banned slavery in on Zanzibar. It's really kind of the last place. And then uh, right before the World War I starts, the British changed to more of a direct rule system. They, they really put their foot down. That's in 1913. And they do the, this all the way until independence, until at least Tanzanian independence, until 1963. 
Now the Brits, they're not all bad, evil, evil people, even though I make them seem like that in this show and the history of Germany. Um, they're pretty cool in the history of alchemy. But uh, they establish a proper sewer, sewage system, garbage disposal system, and also like burial system, like cemeteries and such. So that's, that's cool. Now, December 10th, 1963, they finally get their independence from the UK. It's like a global rite of passage. They are proclaimed a constitutional monarchy, again under a sultan. And promptly, like 20 days later, in January of 64, there is a Zanzibar revolution. Led by an Ugandan citizen, he declares Zanzibar as the People's Republic of Zanzibar and Pemba. And there's a huge, well, it's basically an ethnic cleansing. Like they start getting, they kind of want to get rid of the Arabs and a lot of the Indian civilians that, that live there. In April of the same year, 64, Tanganyika and Zanzibar are united to form the United Republic of Tanganyika, later combined into just Tanzania. They So it, it had Zanzibar in its name. Zanzibar was independent enough throughout history that they called it the United Republic of Tanganyika and Zanzibar, okay? Um, now it's just called Tanzania, but Zanzibar to this day, I'm not really going to get into uh, the modern government, but it's still run as a... Um, kind of like Czechoslovakia was, I guess. Like, they have their own sort of say. And Tanzania, you can tell there's a difference. Like, um, Tanzania the, as a whole, the whole country might be like 40% Christian, 60% Christian. Um, but Zanzibar not. Zanzibar is more like 90% Muslim. So there's there's definitely a difference. They're now basically a... I mean, you could... Yeah, I, I think they're officially like a semi-autonomous region of Tanzania is, is what you could call them. All right, but enough about Portuguese, Omanis, Brits, Indians. Um, who are the Swahili people? So let's go all the way back to the beginning. Now that you have a pretty idea of the lay of the land and what they went through, who are the inhabitants? In a way, I could cut this right here and call this episode two but I'm not gonna, it's not, it wouldn't be standalone. I don't want to repeat myself a bunch because they've just got their independence in 64. Um, before that they were a colony. Um, there's just, there's not been that much, you know, like drive to research their history until, well, starting in the sixties and seventies. And, and, you know, to this day, now, if you read, if you read something written about the history of Zanzibar and the Swahili, now you might read that they're more of a Bantu, they're kind of, you know, the, the Bantu languages is the core. Before, if you read something in the, written in the 50s or before, you might have uh, been told that it was really more of an Arabic or Persian influence. And there's a reason for that, because um, I have a couple different sources that basically say that, that even if you go back in history, everybody had Arab names, everybody spoke Arabic, Swahili was written in Arabic. That's because... They were Muslim, and they, they just they they emulated the Arab culture. They took it on. However, they were still Bantu, so that's just been oversimplified in the past. Let's say, I okay. Now th again, this is a border region, so I don't want to paint the strokes too broad and say, oh, it's just Bantu with Arabic influence either. I this was it's just not that simple. This they really you could say they have a dual nature. That's that's like that's a quote. That's not my idea. Um, but they really are partially Bantu, but there's that Muslim Arabic influence. Um, and there's, I mean, just a, a millennia of trade and contact and, and even intermarriage and all of that. So, I mean, even genetically, it is both and it is neither. Are they a Creole? Oh, I, I would say not because I, I, like, it's not a complete mix of the two. Um, Many people would probably would say it's a Creole language, maybe. So, okay. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I, I, I think, like, dual nature sounds better to me. It's really neither of, of that. or not, And it's not both either. And uh, Sahil is Arabic for coast. So, the coast people, Swahili, the, yeah. Probably the language originated from the islands or really the coastal, coastal area. And not until the 6th century spread inland a little bit. Again, like I mentioned before, 8th century is when you start to see more permanent um, settlements. 12th century, we see gold trade with places like Zimbabwe. Okay. And one story about Swahili that I thought was fascinating when I was there, uh, when I learned about it, 
um, but not quite neat enough for its own episode, so that's why I'm lumping this all together, was uh, how Swahili, why is Swahili spoken today in all of Tanzania and Kenya? Okay, because it's not, so if you look at a map of where Swahili was spoken before the colonial times, it really was just along the rivers, there were some settlements, and then more on the coast and the islands. That was all Swahili. But not like mainly, I mean, the whole Serengeti is is within, Tanzania and Kenya are huge countries, really. Like, I mean, not relative to the United States, but relative to European countries. So it's, yeah. Now, why did they, so why do they speak Swahili everywhere? Because there's tribes and tribes and like the Maasai are in Kenya or straddle the border. They're also in Tanzania. Um, the Samboro, many of the people I will talk about in future are come from these, um, these, these countries. Well, okay. So there was, it was a German policy basically. And, and long story short is, is this, um, it kind of comes down to like missionary. A lot of it was like missionary work and, and they were, you know, just trying to communicate with the locals on a mass level. But this, it, this also became then main government policy because the Germans really realized in the late 19th century, in the Bismarck days, um, as soon as they got to, to Tan, Tanzanica or whatever, that the people were not going to learn German. No, no chance. The Brits did not come to this realization, and the Brits stubbornly were trying to force all the Kenyans to speak English, and it just wasn't working so well. What did work was make everybody, everybody in Tanzania and Zanzibar, speak Swahili, because it was a trade language, it was a Creole language, if you will, it was, you know, a mix, it was easy to learn, it had uh, Bantu words, or, you know, structure, and... Um, Arabic words, everybody could just pick it up because they already knew it a little bit. Unlike German, which was a whole different language branch and just totally foreign. And that worked. They learned it. The whole colony of um, German East Africa learned Swahili. More, not everybody, because the tribes still to this day don't really necessarily all speak Swahili. But then also the Brits saw how well that, wor- that worked. And not only when they took over the colony did they, did they keep that going, but they did the. They followed the same policy in Kenya, and which is interesting. And you do see a difference between Tanzanian and Kenyan um, Swahili. Like when I was there, this is like anecdotal. But the the people showing us around, uh, kind of the, the ones in Tanzania, made fun of the ones in Kenya, saying that that was Swahinglish. Like they throw in a bunch of English words. Whereas in Tanzania, they speak a lot more Swahili, which that goes back to German colonies. So. Um, yeah, anyways, yeah, but, but okay, so I mean, I just got pages and pages of stuff here that I found from, uh, basically missionary, uh, records and books and stories, because, you know, they published a lot of their, their stories, um, yeah, and it's just lots of efforts to, to, it's a lot of, it's a great inside look, let's say, um, and I found some similar stuff for, like, Zing Dao, so I'll do a, on the history of Germany, I'll, I'll do a similar, a sort of episode on the German colony in China, but yeah, just kind of the the German way of thinking and the the German realization. Like very, what I mean is like they're very practical. They they didn't have pride in the way that the Brits did. In some ways, they were just very like, let's get things done, and oh, this doesn't work. Let's try something else. And um, I don't want to oversimplify because yeah, they were also. I mean, they had an ego and all that, but um, and there was definitely. Um, all colonial powers, yeah, there was some atrocities committed against the locals, and the Germans are definitely no exception there. Uh, but that's those are all different episodes. I'll, I'll talk about the the colonial period in more specifics, but that's that's just a huge thing. So I don't, I'm not you know, I'm trying to figure out how to break that up already. Like this is just a tiny island. Zanzibar is not big by any measure, and uh, it's just so rich in history from all over from up you know, from India to all the way to the Congo Basin, that, yeah, this is this is going to get too long. And indeed, uh, I don't know if I've brought this up on the show before, but um, like for the Maasai or the Samboro, for instance, Zanzibar is an administrative language. Now, the Maasai speak Ma. They're, that's, you know, it's a whole different language family. It's more like um, it's closer to Egyptian or Ethiopian or, you know, along those lines. Um, so it's, yeah, totally different which means they have to learn that like 
let's say, for example, you get arrested and you're Maasai and you're somewhere else in your own, like one of the cities and you get arrested in Mosoma or something. The policeman might speak Swahili. He might not speak English. So you probably have to speak Swahili. But in court, as soon as you get, maybe it's a higher court, I'm not sure, but there the official language is English, which means your lawyer will speak English. He'll definitely speak Swahili too. But I mean, you just need to know two foreign languages to defend yourself in your own country, which I mean, that's not a hypothetical problem. That is a problem. Basically, I mean, when I'm there, I, I want, again, this is a whole nother episode, but Swahili is sometimes seen as a colonial tool still, and there's some resentment. Um, Maasai will be their own episode, but uh, like they, when I was there, I saw that they would send one, like often the, the son of the chief, basically, to school. He would learn English and Swahili, and he would come back and teach the other 30 kids, which means that, which means they don't speak it very well, if at all. But that was the idea. Um, so education, you know, they don't all get schooling, which means you have to learn two foreign languages with no formal schooling to, to teach you those languages. It is, it is neat. There's just examples. Um, they, when we were there, they just broke it down. Like the, the flag is they use the Portuguese word. There's English words in Swahili. Bia is beer. Um, there's so like some, some words come from, uh, well, a lot of words come from Arabic, um, and it's just this whole, like, well, actually, if you've seen the Lion King, like Simba means lion, uh, Rafiki means friend, Mufasa, uh, Hakuna Matata, like there's all these shirts with like, th- that's Swahili. Okay. So you've heard that. Um, otherwise, yeah, like Mambo, like I remember like, so there's like Mambo, which is like, how are you doing? And then, uh, yeah, it, yeah. So the answer to that would be Poa, which is like, cool. That's like slang almost is great. Uh, cheetah, by the way. And there's even, so because of this trade, even in India, there's a language called Sidi. It's spoken in Gujarat, and it, which is a coastal community or region uh, in India where they use a, it's basically, it's a Swahili dialect or again, a, a mix of that and some Hindi language, or not necessarily Hindi, but uh, <laughs> a language spoken in India. Okay, so in summary, Zanzibar is a crazy interesting place. I just, you gotta, I mean, to describe, I wanted to paint you a picture of Stone Town and these beautiful beaches and, and it's a podcast. So if you want to see that, just do a Google image of, you know, Stone Town, Zanzibar City, uh, Zanzibar Beach. Those, I mean, it's just incredibly beautiful everywhere. We did also one time I chose to be adventurous and instead of taking the the taxi everywhere we were driven, they never wanted us to walk. And one time I was like, no, you know, the beach is right there. I can see it on the horizon. I'm walking from the resort to the beach or to a specific beach. And we did, we went off road and we walked just along the beaches to the specific place. And we saw villages that were off the beaten track and we instantly saw why they wanted us. I mean, they looked at us like we were from Mars and it's like, why? Where the, the island is full of white people, full of tourists. But it is in its own way and not officially, it's just naturally very segregated. So there's the population that feeds and, you know, feeds the tourists. And then there's the ones that feed those that feed the tourists. And then there's the very poor. So like just a, a strange place in that regard. I don't want to over romanticize it, even though like it's hard not to. I mean, we ate incredibly good food that was like unique to me. I mean, I've eaten Indian food and all kinds of Arabic food, Mediterranean, but this was all of that and different. I mean, it was Swahili food. It was, but you know, crazy good. Um, spices there, lots of spices. So there's there's two sides to this. And if you go there as a tourist, you're going to love it. But um, yeah, it's not all, uh, there's a price for that, I guess. But tourism is their main income. Uh, overall, you definitely hurt, you definitely help them. That's their main economic kind of um, outlet. So yeah, if I guess if you take one thing from this episode, just remember that I saw where Freddie Mercury lived as a child in Stonetown. If that's your only takeaway from this episode, that's that's totally cool. This is like this is getting to be an hour long, so I'm gonna sign off. There's a lot of topics I touched that I'm going to come back to in other episodes, so don't worry. Also, feel free to send me some feedback. 
um, go to podcastnick.com, podcast N-I-K. It's at that domain, but you can leave comments or messages there on Podcast Nick or find me on Twitter at Podcast Nick or on Facebook even if you want. Don't forget, the best way to help a new show is to rate and review us on iTunes. And even though that's a huge pain, and even if you don't use, even if you hate iTunes, still, there's no way I can overemphasize this. And that is that because 80% of our downloads all come from iTunes, even if you've never logged into iTunes, even if you use some totally other app, there's a good chance they still get it from iTunes. Um, Which means, yeah, iTunes is our everything. I don't care if you're an Android user, Log into, you can just Google search Africa history iTunes in your browser and, you know, it'll, it'll, I mean, I know, I know, but really it's the, it's, it's the best way to help us. Um, if you do that, then we show up on new and noteworthy. We show up on the history list and all that. So, um, yeah, that would, that, that really helps out a lot. Actually, that helps out more than any other thing. I'll never ask for money. This will always be a free show, but a review on iTunes, that, that's not too much to ask. Come on. Other than that, I hope you enjoyed that one. Don't forget, we're a member of Agora and the Dark Myths Collective. Links to all those, more shows, and my other shows are on podcastnick.com, podcastnik.com, and thanks for listening. If you're still here, if you listened all the way till the end, then then that's awesome. I love you. Uh, so that was like episode five on Africa history, which no longer exists. So, but still, I, I like how I hounded the iTunes thing at the end. I don't really do that anymore, but that is true. That's the single best thing that helps us. Um, otherwise, yeah, check out podcastnick.com. Check out podcastnickshop.com. There's, there's no Africa merch. I didn't want to get rich off of Africa stuff. You can really help out the show by supporting our sponsors, checking out the merch, and signing up for the newsletter, following us on Twitter. Do whatever you can. Post our stuff to Reddit. I don't want to. I never want to post my own stuff to Reddit. So post my stuff to Reddit, please. Thanks. <laughs> I'm Travis Dow. This is what the Podcast Nick Show, whatever we're calling it. Thanks so much for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.